Did you know you can listen to this sleepy bookshelf ad-free by joining our premium feed? You'll also get exclusive bonus episodes and a seven-day free trial so you can decide whether you like it or not. Follow the link in the show notes to learn more. Good evening and welcome to the sleepy bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm really glad to have you join me. Tonight, we're continuing with Pride and Prejudice. But before we open our book, let's take a moment to relax and recenter. Get comfortable where you are and give yourself a big stretch. Allow all your muscles to fall heavy and check if any areas need an extra stretch to help release any tension. Now, inhale into your belly allowing your mind to gather together all the worries and thoughts still drifting there from the day. And on your exhale, let them all go. Last time, Elizabeth was digesting Darcy's letter. At first, she refused to believe all his justifications for his behavior. But as she read and reread, she began to contemplate whether it had been herself who had been misled by her own prejudice all along. The next morning, Darcy and the Colonel departed Rosings with little more than a civil goodbye. Elizabeth, and Mariah also left the parsonage the day after that, heading first to London to collect Jane and then on to Hertfordshire. They met their younger sisters, Kitty and Lydia, at the inn where their father's carriage was meeting them, who had lots of stories of all the goings-on since they had been away. Namely, that Wickham was no longer engaged to Miss Mary King, and that the militia were due to leave Meryton to be stationed in Brighton for the summer. And that is where we pick back up tonight, with the girls home in Longbourn, and Elizabeth having the first opportunity to speak to Jane alone about her news with Mr. Darcy. Chapter 17 Elizabeth's impatience to acquaint Jane with what had happened could no longer be overcome, and at length resolving to suppress every particular in which her sister was concerned and preparing her to be surprised, she related to her the next morning the chief of the scene between Mr. Darcy and herself. Miss Jane Bennet's astonishment was soon lessened by the strong, sisterly partiality which made any admiration of Elizabeth appear perfectly natural, and all surprise was shortly lost in other feelings. She was sorry that Mr. Darcy should have delivered his sentiments in a manner so little suited to recommend them, but still more was she grieved for the unhappiness which her sister's refusal must have given him. 
His being so sure of succeeding was wrong, said Jane, and certainly ought to not have appeared. But consider how much it must increase his disappointment. Indeed, replied Elizabeth, I am heartily sorry for him, but he has other feelings which will probably soon drive away his regard for me. You do not blame me, however, for refusing him. Blame you? Oh no, said Jane. But you blame me for having spoken so warmly of Wickham, Elizabeth replied. No, I do not know that you were wrong in saying what you did, Jane said. But you will know it when I have told you what happened the very next day, said Elizabeth. She then spoke of the letter, repeating the whole of its contents as far as they concerned George Wickham. What a stroke was this for poor Jane, who would willingly have gone through the world without believing that so much wickedness existed in the whole race of mankind, as was here collected in one individual. Nor was Darcy's vindication, though grateful to her feelings, capable of consoling her for such discovery. Most earnestly did she labor to prove the probability of error and seek to clear one without involving the other. This will not do, said Elizabeth. You never will be able to make both of them good for anything. Take your choice, but you must be satisfied with only one. There is but such a quantity of merit between them just enough to make one good sort of man. And of late, it has been shifting about pretty much. For my part, I am inclined to believe it all Mr. Darcy's. But you shall do as you choose. It was some time, however, before a smile could be extorted from Jane. I do not know when I have been more shocked, said she. Wickham's so very bad. It is almost past belief. And poor Mr. Darcy. Dear Lizzie, only consider what he must have suffered. Such a disappointment. And with the knowledge of your ill opinion, too. And having to relate such a thing of his sister. It really is too distressing. I'm sure you must feel it so. Oh no, my regard and compassion are all done away by seeing you so full of both, said Elizabeth. I know you will do him such ample justice that I am growing every moment more unconcerned and indifferent. Your profusion makes me saving, and if you lament over him much longer, my heart will be as light as a feather. Poor Wickham, said Jane. There is such an expression of goodness in his countenance, such an openness and gentleness in his manner. There certainly was some great mismanagement in the education of those two young men, replied Elizabeth. One has got all the goodness, and the other all the appearance of it. I never thought Mr. Darcy so deficient in the appearance of it as you used to, said Jane. And yet, I meant to be uncommonly clever in taking so decided a dislike to him, without any reason, Elizabeth said. It is such to spur one's genius such an opening for wit to have a dislike of that kind. One may be continually abusive without saying anything just, but one cannot be always laughing at a man 
without now and then stumbling on something witty. Lizzie, when you first read that letter, I'm sure you could not treat the matter as you do now, said Jane. Indeed, I could not, said Elizabeth. I was uncomfortable enough. I was very uncomfortable, I may say unhappy, and with no one to speak to of what I felt, no Jane to comfort me and say that I had not been so very weak and vain and nonsensical as I knew I had. Oh, how I wanted you. How unfortunate that you should have used such very strong expressions in speaking of Wickham to Mr. Darcy, for now they do appear wholly undeserved, said Jane. Certainly, Elizabeth replied. But the misfortune of speaking with bitterness is a most natural consequence of the prejudices I had been encouraging. There is but one point on which I want your advice. I want to be told whether I ought or ought not to make our acquaintances in general understand Wickham's character. Miss Jane Bennet paused a little and then replied, Surely there can be no occasion for exposing him so dreadfully. What is your own opinion? That it ought not to be attempted, answered Elizabeth. Mr. Darcy has not authorized me to make his communication public. On the contrary, every particular relative to his sister was meant to be kept as much as possible to myself. And if I endeavor to undeceive people as to the rest of his conduct, who will believe me? The general prejudice against Mr. Darcy is so violent that it would be the death of half the good people in Meryton to attempt to place him in an amiable light. I am not equal to it. Wickham will soon be gone, and therefore it will not signify to anybody here what he really is. Sometime, hence, it will be all found out and then we may laugh at their stupidity in not knowing it before. At present, I will say nothing about it. You are quite right, said Jane. To have all his errors made public might ruin him forever. He is now perhaps sorry for what he has done, and anxious to re-establish a character. We must not make him desperate. The tumult of Elizabeth's mind was allayed by this conversation. She had got rid of two of the secrets which had weighed on her for a fortnight, and was now certain of a willing listener in Jane whenever she might wish to talk again of either. But there was still something lurking behind, of which prudence forbade the disclosure. She dared not relate the other half of Mr. Darcy's letter, nor explain to her sister how sincerely she had been valued by his friend. Here was knowledge in which no one could partake, and she was sensible that nothing less than a perfect understanding between the parties could justify her in throwing off this last encumbrance of mystery. And then, said she, if that very improbable event should ever take place, I shall merely be able to tell what Bingley may tell in a more agreeable manner himself. The liberty of communication cannot be mine till it has lost all its value. She was now, on being settled at home, had leisure to observe the real state of her sister's spirits. Jane was not happy. She still cherished a very tender affection for Bingley, having never even fancied herself in love before. Her regard 
had all the warmth of a first attachment, and from her age and disposition, a greater steadiness than first attachments often boast. And so fervently did she value his remembrance and prefer him to every other man that all her good sense and all her attention to the feelings of her friends were requisite to check the indulgence of those regrets which must have been injurious to her own health and their tranquility. Well, Lizzie, said Mrs. Bennet one day, what is your opinion now of this sad business of Jane's? For my part, I am determined never to speak of it again to anybody. I told my sister Phillips so the other day, but I cannot find out that Jane saw anything of him in London. Well, he is a very undeserving young man, and I do not suppose there is the least chance in the world of her ever getting him now. There is no talk of his coming to Netherfield again in the summer, and I have inquired of everybody too who is likely to know. I do not believe that he will ever live at Netherfield any more," said Elizabeth. Oh well, it is just as he chooses, replied Mrs. Bennet. Nobody wants him to come, though I shall always say that he used my daughter extremely ill, and if I was her, I would not have put up with it. Well. My comfort is, I am sure Jane will die of a broken heart, and then he will be sorry for what he has done. But, as Elizabeth could not receive comfort from any such expectation, she made no answer. Well, Lizzie, continued her mother soon afterwards, and so the Collinses live very comfortable, do they? Well, well. I only hope it will last. And what sort of table do they keep? Charlotte is an excellent manager, I dare say. If she is half as sharp as her mother, she is saving enough. There is nothing extravagant in their housekeeping, I dare say. No, nothing at all, said Elizabeth. A great deal of good management depend upon it. Yes, yes, said Mrs. Bennet. They will not care to outrun their income. They will never be distressed for money. Well, much good may it do them. And so I suppose they often talk of having Longbourn when your father is dead. They look upon it quite as their own, I dare say, whenever that happens. It was a subject which they could not mention before me replied Elizabeth. No, it would have been strange if they had, said Mrs. Bennet. But I make no doubt they often talk of it between themselves. Well, if they can be easy with an estate that is not lawfully their own, so much the better. I should be ashamed of having one that was entailed on me. Chapter 18. The first week of their return was soon gone. The second began. It was the last of the regiment's stay in Meryton, and all the young ladies in the neighborhood were drooping apace. The dejection was almost universal. The elder Miss Bennets alone were still able to eat, drink, and sleep and pursue the usual course of their employments. Very frequently were they reproached for this insensibility by Kitty and Lydia, whose own misery was extreme, and who could not comprehend such a hard-heartedness in any of the family. Good heaven, what is to become of us? What are we to do? they would often exclaim in the bitterness of woe. 
How can you be smiling so, Lizzie? Their affectionate mother shared all their grief. She remembered what she had herself endured on a similar occasion, five and twenty years ago. I am sure, said she. I cried for two days together when Colonel Miller's regiment went away. I thought I should have broke my heart. I'm sure I shall break mine, said Lydia. If one could but go to Brighton, observed Mrs. Bennet. Oh yes, if one could but go to Brighton, said Lydia. But Papa is so disagreeable. A little sea bathing would set me up forever, said Mrs. Bennet. And my Aunt Phillips is sure it would do me a great deal of good, added Kitty. Such were the kind of lamentations resounding perpetually through Longbourn House. Elizabeth tried to be diverted by them, but all sense of pleasure was lost in shame. She felt anew the justice of Mr. Darcy's objections, and never had she before been so much disposed to pardon his interference in the views of his friend. But the gloom of Lydia's prospect was shortly cleared away, for she received an invitation from Mrs. Forster, the wife of the colonel of the regiment, to accompany her to Brighton. This invaluable friend was a very good woman and very lately married. A resemblance in good humor and good spirits had recommended her and Lydia to each other, and out of their three months' acquaintance, they had been an intimate too. The rapture of Lydia on this occasion her adoration of Mrs. Forster, the delight of Mrs. Bennet, and the mortification of Kitty are scarcely to be described. Wholly inattentive to her sister's feelings, Lydia flew about the house in restless ecstasy, calling for everyone's congratulations and laughing and talking with more violence than ever whilst the luckless Kitty continued in the parlor, repining at her fate in terms as unreasonable as her accent was peevish. I can't see why Mrs. Forster should not ask me as well as Lydia, said she. Though I am not her particular friend, I have just as much right to be asked as she has, and more too, for I am two years older. In vain did Elizabeth attempt to make her reasonable and Jane to make her resigned. As for Elizabeth herself, this invitation was so far from exciting in her the same feelings as in her mother and Lydia that she considered it as the death warrant of all possibility of common sense for the latter and detestable as such a step must make her were it known, she could not help secretly advising her father not to let her go. She represented to him all the improprieties of Lydia's general behavior, the little advantage she could derive from the friendship of such a woman as Mrs. Forster, and the probability of her being yet more imprudent with such a companion at Brighton, where the temptations must be greater than at home. He heard her attentively and then said, Lydia will never be easy till she has exposed herself in some public place or other, and we can never expect her to do it with so little expense or inconvenience to her family as under the present circumstances. If you were aware, said Elizabeth, of the very great disadvantage to us all 
which must arise from the public notice of Lydia's unguarded and imprudent manner, nay, which has already arisen from it, I am sure you would judge differently in the affair. Already arisen? repeated Mr. Bennet. What, has she frightened away some of your lovers? Poor little Lizzie. But do not be cast down. Such squeamish youths as cannot bear to be connected with a little absurdity are not worth a regret. Come, let me see the list of pitiful fellows who have been kept aloof by Lydia's folly. Indeed, you are mistaken. I have no such injuries to resent, said Elizabeth. It is not of peculiar, but of general evils which I am now complaining. Our importance, our respectability in the world, must not be affected by the wild volatility, the assurance and disdain of all restraint which mark Lydia's character. Excuse me, for I must speak plainly. If you, my dear father, will not take the trouble of checking her exuberant spirits and of teaching her that her present pursuits are not to be the business of her life, she will soon be beyond the reach of amendment. Her character will be fixed and she will at sixteen be the most determined flirt that ever made herself and her family ridiculous. A flirt too in the worst and meanest degree of flirtation, without any attraction beyond youth and a tolerable person, and from the ignorant emptiness of her mind, wholly unable to ward off any portion of that universal contempt which her rage for admiration will excite. In this danger, Kitty is also comprehended. She will follow wherever Lydia leads. Vain, ignorant, idle, and absolutely uncontrolled. Oh, my dear father, can you suppose it possible that they will not be censured and despised wherever they are known? and that their sisters will not be often involved in the disgrace. Mr. Bennet saw that her whole heart was in the subject, and affectionately taking her hand, said in reply, Do not make yourself uneasy, my love. Wherever you and Jane are known, you must be respected and valued, and you will not appear to less advantage for having a couple of or I may say, three very silly sisters. We shall have no peace at Longbourn if Lydia does not go to Brighton. Let her go then. Colonel Forster is a sensible man and will keep her out of any real mischief. And she is, luckily, too poor to be an object of prey to anybody. At Brighton, she will be of less importance even as a common flirt than she has been here. The officers will find women better worth their notice. Let us hope, therefore, that her being there may teach her her own insignificance. At any rate, she cannot grow many degrees worse without authorizing us to lock her up for the rest of her life. With this answer, Elizabeth was forced to be content but her own opinion continued the same, and she left him disappointed and sorry. It was not in her nature, however, to increase her vexations by dwelling on them. She was confided of having performed her duty, and to fret over unavoidable evils or augment them by anxiety was no part of her disposition. Had Lydia and her mother known the substance of her conference with her father, their indignation would hardly have found expression in their united volubility. In Lydia's imagination, 
a visit to Brighton comprised every possibility of earthly happiness. She saw with the creative eye of fancy the streets of that gay bathing place covered with officers. She saw herself the object of attention to tens and to scores of them at present unknown. She saw all the glories of the camp, its tents stretched forth in beauteous uniformity of lines, crowded with the young and the gay and dazzling with scarlet. And to complete the view, she saw herself seated beneath a tent, tenderly flirting with at least six officers at once. Had she known that her sister sought to tear her from such prospects and such realities as these, what would have been her sensations? They could have been understood only by her mother, who might have felt nearly the same. Lydia's going to Brighton was all that consoled her for the melancholy convictions of her husband's never intending to go there himself. But they were entirely ignorant of what had passed, and their raptures continued with little intermission to the very day of Lydia's leaving home. Elizabeth was now to see Mr. Wickham for the last time. Having been frequently in company with him since her return, Agitation was pretty well over, the agitations of former partiality entirely so. She had even learned to detect, in the very gentleness which had first delighted her, an affection and a sameness to disgust and weary. In his present behavior to herself, moreover, she had a fresh source of displeasure for the inclination he soon testified of renewing those attentions which had marked the early part of their acquaintance could only serve, after what had since passed, to provoke her. She lost all concern for him in finding herself thus selected as the object of such idle and frivolous gallantry, and while she steadily repressed it, could not but feel the reproof contained in his believing that however long and for whatever cause his attentions had been withdrawn, her vanity would be gratified and her preference secured at any time by their renewal. On the very last day of the regiments remaining in Meryton, he dined with others of the officers at Longbourn, and so little was Elizabeth disposed to part from him in good humour, that on his making some inquiry as to the manner in which her time had passed at Hunsford, she mentioned Colonel Fitzwilliams and Mr. Darcy's having both spent three weeks at Rosings, and asked him if he were acquainted with the former. He looked surprised, displeased, alarmed. But with a moment's recollection and a returning smile, replied that he had formerly seen him often, and after observing that he was a very gentlemanlike man, asked her how she had liked him. Her answer was warmly in his favour. With an air of indifference, he soon afterwards added, How long did you say that he was at Rosings? Nearly three weeks, said Elizabeth. And you saw him frequently? Asked Wickham. Yes, almost every day, Elizabeth answered. His manners are very different from his cousins, Wickham remarked. Yes, very different said Elizabeth. But I think Mr. Darcy improves on acquaintance. Indeed, cried Wickham with a look which did not escape her. And pray, may I ask, 
But, checking himself, he added in a greyer tone, Is it in address that he improves? Has he deigned to add aught of civility to his ordinary style? For I dare not hope, he continued in a lower and more serious tone, that he is improved in essentials. Oh no, said Elizabeth. In essentials, I believe he is very much what he ever was. While she spoke, Wickham looked as if scarcely knowing whether to rejoice over her words or to distrust their meaning. There was something in her countenance which made him listen with an apprehensive and anxious attention, while she added, When I said that he improved on acquaintance, I did not mean that either his mind or manners were in a state of improvement, but that, from knowing him better, his disposition was better understood. Wickham's alarm now appeared in a heightened complexion and agitated look. For a few minutes, he was silent, till, shaking off his embarrassment, he turned to her again and said in the gentlest of accents, You, who know so well my feelings towards Mr. Darcy, will readily comprehend how sincerely I must rejoice that he is wise enough to assume even the appearance of what is right. His pride in that direction may be of service, if not to himself, to many others, for it must deter him from such foul misconduct as I have suffered by. I only fear that the sort of cautiousness to which you, I imagine, have been alluding is merely adopted on his visits to his aunt, of whose good opinion and judgment he stands much in awe. His fear of her has always operated, I know, when they were together. And a good deal is to be imputed to his wish of forwarding the match with Mr. Burke, which I am certain he has very much at heart. Elizabeth could not repress a smile at this, but she answered only by a slight inclination of the head. She saw that he wanted to engage her on the old subject of his grievances, and she was in no humour to indulge him. The rest of the evening passed with the appearance on his side of usual cheerfulness. But with no further attempt to distinguish Elizabeth, and they parted at last with mutual civility and possibly a mutual desire of never meeting again. When the party broke up, Lydia returned with Mrs. Forster to Meryton, from whence they were to set out early the next morning. The separation between her and her family was rather noisy than pathetic. Kitty was the only one who shed tears, but she did weep from vexation and envy. Mrs. Bennet was diffuse in her good wishes for the felicity of her daughter, and impressive in her injunctions that she would not miss the opportunity of enjoying herself as much as possible. Advice which there was every reason to believe would be attended to. And in the clamorous happiness of Lydia herself in bidding farewell, the more gentle adieus of her sisters were uttered without being heard. Chapter 19 Had Elizabeth's opinion been all drawn from her own family, she could have not formed a very pleasing picture of conjugal felicity or domestic comfort. Her father, captivated by youth and beauty and that appearance of good humour which youth and beauty generally give, had married a woman 
whose weak understanding and illiberal mind had very early in their marriage put an end to all real affection for her. Respect, esteem, and confidence had vanished forever, and all his views of domestic happiness were overthrown. But Mr. Bennet was not of a disposition to seek comfort for the disappointment which his own imprudence had brought on. In any of those pleasures, which too often console the unfortunate for their folly or their vice. He was fond of the country and of books, and from these tastes had arisen his principal enjoyments. To his wife, he was very little otherwise indebted than as her ignorance and folly had contributed to his amusement. This is not the sort of happiness which a man would in general wish to owe to his wife, but where other powers of entertainment are wanting, the true philosopher will derive benefit from such as are given. Elizabeth, however, had never been blind to the impropriety of her father's behavior as a husband. She had always seen it with pain but respecting his abilities and grateful for his affectionate treatment of herself, she endeavored to forget what she could not overlook and to banish from her thoughts that continual breach of conjugal obligation and decorum which, in exposing his wife to the contempt of her own children, was so highly reprehensible but she had never felt so strongly as now the disadvantages which must attend the children of so unsuitable a marriage, nor ever been so fully aware of the evils arising from so ill-judged a direction of talents, talents which, rightly used, might at least have preserved the respectability of his daughters even if incapable of enlarging the mind of his wife. When Elizabeth had rejoiced over Wickham's departure, she found little other cause for the satisfaction in the loss of the regiment. Their parties abroad were less varied than before, and at home she had a mother and sister whose constant repinings at the dullness of everything around them threw a real gloom over their domestic circle. And, though Kitty might, in time, regain her natural degree of sense since the disturbers of her brain were removed, her other sister, from whose disposition greater evil might be apprehended, was likely to be hardened in all her folly and assurance by a situation of such double danger as a watering place and a camp. Upon the whole, therefore, she found what has been sometimes found before, that an event to which she had looked forward with impatient desire did not, in taking place, bring all the satisfaction which she had promised herself. It was consequently necessary to name some other period for the commencement of actual felicity, to have some other point on which her wishes and hopes might be fixed, and by again enjoying the pleasure of anticipation, console herself for the present and prepare for another disappointment. Her tour to the lakes was now the object of her happiest thoughts. It was her best consolation for all the uncomfortable hours which the discontentedness of her mother and Kitty made inevitable. And could she have included Jane in the scheme, every part of it would have been perfect. But it is fortunate, thought she, that I have something to wish for. Were the whole arrangement complete, 
my disappointment would be certain. But here, by carrying with me one ceaseless source of regret in my sister's absence, I may reasonably hope to have all my expectations of pleasure realized. A scheme which every part promises delight can never be successful, and general disappointment is only warded off by the defense of some little, peculiar vexation. When Lydia went away, she promised to write very often and very minutely to her mother and Kitty, but her letters were always long expected and always very short. Those to her mother contained little else than they were just returned from the library, where such and such officers had attended them, and where she had seen such beautiful ornaments as made her quite wild, that she had a new gown or a new parasol, which she would have described more fully, but was obliged to leave off in a violent hurry, as Mrs. Forster called her, and they were going to the camp. And from her correspondence with her sister, there was still less to be learnt, for her letters to Kitty, though rather longer, were much too full of lines under the words to be made public. After the first fortnight or three weeks of her absence, health, good humour, and cheerfulness began to reappear at Longbourn. Everything wore a happier aspect. The families who had been in town for the winter came back again, and summer finery and summer engagements arose. Mrs. Bennet was restored to her usual, querulous serenity, and by the middle of June, Kitty was so much recovered as to be able to enter Meryton without tears, an event of such happy promise as to make Elizabeth hope that by the following Christmas she might be so tolerably reasonable as to not mention an officer above once a day, unless by some cruel and malicious arrangement at the war office another regiment should be quartered in Meryton. The time fixed for the beginning of their northern tour was now fast approaching. A fortnight only was wanting of it, when a letter arrived from Mrs. Gardner, which at once delayed its commencement and curtailed its extent. Mr. Gardner would be prevented by business from setting out till a fortnight later in July and must be in London again within a month, and, as that left too short a period for them to go so far and see so much as they had proposed, or at least to see it with the leisure and comfort they had built on, they were obliged to give up the lakes and substitute a more contracted tour, and according to the present plan were to go no farther northward than Derbyshire, in that country there was enough to be seen to occupy the chief of their three weeks, and to Mrs. Gardner it had a peculiarly strong attraction. The town where she had formerly passed some years of her life, and where they were now to spend a few days, was probably as great an object of her curiosity as all the celebrated beauties of Matlock, Chatsworth, Dovedale, or the Peak. Elizabeth was excessively disappointed. She had set her heart on seeing the lakes, and still thought there might have been time enough. But it was her business to be satisfied, and certainly her temper to be happy, and all was soon right again. With the mention of Derbyshire, there were many ideas connected. It was impossible for her to see the word without thinking of Pemberley and its owner. But surely, said she, I may enter his county with impunity, 
and rob it of a few petrified spars without his perceiving me. The period of expectation was now doubled. Four weeks were to pass away before her uncle and aunt's arrival. But they did pass, and Mr. and Mrs. Gardiner, with their four children, did at length appear at Longbourn. The children, two girls of six and eight years old, and two younger boys, were to be left under the particular care of their cousin Jane, who was the general favourite, and whose steady sense and sweetness of temper exactly adapted her for attending to them in every way, teaching them, playing with them, and loving them. The gardeners stayed only one night at Longbourn and set off the next morning with Elizabeth in pursuit of novelty and amusement. One enjoyment was certain, that of suitableness as companions, a suitableness which comprehended health and temper to bear inconveniences, cheerfulness to enhance every pleasure and affection and intelligence which might supply it among themselves if there were disappointments abroad. It is not the object of this work to give a description of Derbyshire, nor of any of the remarkable places through which their route there lay. Oxford, Blenheim, Warwick, Kenilworth, and Birmingham are sufficiently known. A small part of Derbyshire is all the present concern. To the little town of Lambton, the scene of Mrs. Gardiner's former residence, and where she had lately learned that some acquaintance still remained, they bent their steps after having seen all the principal wonders of the country. And within five miles of Lambton, Elizabeth found from her aunt that Pemberley was situated. It was not in their direct road, nor more than a mile or two out of it. In talking over their route the evening before, Mrs. Gardiner expressed an inclination to see the place again. Mr. Gardiner declared his willingness and Elizabeth was applied to for her approbation. My love, should you not like to see a place of which you have heard so much? said her aunt. A place, too, with which so many of your acquaintances are connected. Wickham passed all his youth there, you know. Elizabeth was distressed. She felt she had no business at Pemberley and was obliged to assume a disinclination for seeing it. She must own that she was tired of great houses. After going over so many, she really had no pleasure in fine carpets or satin curtains. Mrs. Gardiner abused her stupidity. If it were merely a fine house richly furnished, said she, I should not care about it myself, but the grounds are delightful. They have some of the finest woods in the country. Elizabeth said no more, but her mind could not acquiesce. The possibility of meeting Mr. Darcy while viewing the place instantly occurred. It would be dreadful. She blushed at the very idea and thought it would be better to speak openly to her aunt than run such a risk. But against this there were objections, and she finally resolved that it could be the last resource if her private inquiries as to the absence of the family were unfavorably answered. Accordingly, when she retired at night, she asked the chambermaid whether Pemberley were not a very fine place. What was the name of its proprietor? 
and with no little alarm, whether the family were down for the summer. A most welcome negative followed the last question, and her alarms being now removed, she was at leisure to feel a great deal of curiosity to see the house herself. And when the subject was revived the next morning, and she was again applied to, could readily answer, and with a proper air of indifference, that she had not really any dislike to the scheme. To Pemberley, therefore, they were to go.